Well, please turn in your Bible to the book of Ruth, chapter 2. It's found in the first part of the Bible in the Old Testament. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books called the Pentateuch. And then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And we're into chapter 2 of Ruth, and I'm going to read this and then uh, bring us a message from God's word. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, although I don't have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, dip it into the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves, don't reprimand her, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she'd eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. 
Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit today and grant us the reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know anyone who doesn't want their life to flourish. And I bet you don't either. I don't know anyone who doesn't want their life to flourish. Flourishing means to prosper, to grow, to do well. People who are flourishing are strong, healthy, happy. They're able to develop, to go places, to mature. They're thriving. We all want to flourish, but the problem is we don't really know how to. And as a result, people ransack their lives and invest themselves in all sorts of pursuits that ultimately disappoint. Some seek to flourish through success. Perhaps they pursue a career to do as well as they can, to get as high as they can, to be renowned. Some try that through the academic sphere, the world of publications and research. Others seek success in financial terms to build resources, property, assets, investments, a big bank balance, salary. Others of us maybe look in a more intimate way to, to flourish in relationships. We focus on perhaps marriage and family and think, well, if I can get there, then that, that'll be the place that I will find my true self. And some feel that they will only feel flourish if they feel ultimately safe, comfortable. So they will pay any price for their own comfort. What about you? Now, all of these things will give us some short-term gains and some short-term wins. But none of the, these strategies is big enough to cope with the weight of your life. So we keep on searching with a vague sense that life isn't what we hoped it would be. And maybe we've felt that more keenly during the restrictions and lockdown of the last year as we've been cooped up with ourselves more often than we usually might. We make hundreds of choices every month, every week, uh, with this goal of flourishing under the surface, but it never quite seems to come off. Now, as you might expect, the Bible speaks into this situation, and the book of Ruth is an incredible source of wisdom on this matter of human flourishing. And it might be surprising to you if you remember what we read last week, uh, how the book started. In chapter one, just about everything that could go wrong in life did. The book began with a woman called Naomi, married to her husband Elimelech and two sons. And Naomi's life was pretty good at the start, but within five verses, everything had gone wrong. There was a famine, a severe famine in the country. They lived in a place called Bethlehem and there was nothing to eat. So they took a big risk and left their home lost their home and went to a place called Moab to the east, another neighbouring nation, a foreign country. And there her husband died 
And in the patriarchal world of that time, that was a serious calamity. It was a man's world. There was no uh, state social security in the way that we understand that. A woman's status, her perception of happiness, her security, her future were all bound up in, in family, in having a husband, children and descendants. Now, there was a brief glimmer of hope as the two sons were still alive and they married women from the local area, Moabites. But after 10 years, no children were born. So there was no future. We don't know why, but the indications were that Naomi's future was still in jeopardy. And it went from bad to worse when both sons died. So she was now a widow with two daughters-in-law who were both widows. She decided to do the right thing. She decided she would release them from her empty life and send them back to their own mothers to start to build a life again. But one of those women made a radical choice. We'll think about that in a moment. What do you do when life turns bitter and empty? We thought about that question last week. Emptiness was experienced and expressed by Naomi in the most honest terms. She brought it right into the presence of God. But that emptiness was also expectant because even in the midst of her despair and misery, the living God was at work. Naomi was so desperate she couldn't even see it. But in the lowest point, in the deepest darkness, a voice spoke and it was the voice of Ruth, the daughter-in-law. Ruth wasn't an Israelite or a follower of the true God, but Ruth made one of the most extraordinary commitments in the entire Bible. Verse 16 of chapter 1. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you, said Ruth. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now that's a promise. Ruth's leap of faith is like that of Abraham back in Genesis 12, perhaps even greater. She possesses nothing. No God has called her or made her a promise. She lives and chooses without a support group. She knows that the fruit of her decision may well be emptiness, rejection, even death. And there's more. Not only has Ruth broken with her family, her country and her faith, she's also reversed traditional allegiance. A young woman committed herself to the life of an older woman rather than the search for a husband. There is no more radical decision in all the Old Testament. That's why when you feel empty, you should also feel expectant because you don't know what God is doing. How he will use it to take you through, to grow you, to build you into somebody new and better. But you do know that the story isn't over. Now, the key thing we learn this week is what the flourishing life looks like, how to flourish. And I think it will challenge all of us because what we see in this chapter are two qualities that we need in our lives, in our character, if we're going to flourish. We need to develop them ourselves and they're almost entirely concerned with how we relate to other people. You might say that the flourishing life, according to the Bible, is a life that is turned outwards rather than a life that is focused inwards. The two qualities that we're going to notice are loyalty and generosity. Loyalty and generosity. Consider first the loyalty of Ruth. The loyalty of Ruth. Verse 2, 
Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. What's going on here? The law of Moses in the Old Testament had given, uh, God had given these principles and laws to govern the life of society in Israel. And if they'd followed it, it would have been a, a society that almost completely eliminated poverty. One set of laws related to a practice called gleaning. Gleaning. Landowners in, in, under this law were not permitted to gather all of the grain that their land could produce. They had to leave some of it for the poor to uh, gather for themselves. So they, they weren't Landowners weren't supposed to harvest right up to the boundary of their property. They had to leave a margin so that the poor could pick up crops. In other words, farmers were supposed to voluntarily limit their profit taking. But the gleaning laws weren't charity in the sense of giving someone a handout. Uh, the poor had to work and this meant that they were able to provide for themselves without relying on charity and benevolence. It was a wonderful provision in God's law. Naomi says just two words in the original language. We have it translated, go ahead, my daughter. She just says, go, my daughter. So off Ruth goes. Now, it would be easy for us to overlook the sheer loyalty that Ruth is demonstrating at this point. She's the one who's made the sacrificial commitment to Naomi to come to Bethlehem. She's not from there. She's a stranger, an outsider. She doesn't know anyone. She finds herself in this insular rural community she's not one of the people they view her as an unclean outsider and we see this in the way that the author keeps subtly reminding us she's a Moabite from Moab you know keeps saying it in other words Ruth is at the bottom of the social order with no rights and privileges and as a single young woman a widow what she's now doing is actually dangerous she's going out alone into the fields where men work and they will not necessarily respect her rights. It's underlined repeatedly in the text as Boaz is quite concerned. He provides protection for her with his workers and he warns her not to go into other fields. And there he says right at the end, in someone else's field, you might be harmed. You see, Ruth's loyalty to Naomi has led her to take a massive personal risk to get food. Naomi. She wanders off into a field, finds one and starts to glean and it just so happens that it belongs to Boaz. We'll come back to that later. Notice the way that Ruth works. Verse 7, she came into the field. She's remained here from morning until now except for a short rest. Verse 17, Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she gathered. It amounted to an ephah. Now, the footnote in, in my Bible here, the NIV, says that an ephah is about 13 kilograms or about 30 pounds. Some scholars think it could be as much as 50 pounds. The point is, it is an epic amount for someone to glean in one day. It's enough to feed them for at least two weeks, one day's work. And Ruth carries this huge crop home single-handedly and delivers it proudly to her mother-in-law. She also then brings out the leftovers from lunch and so that her mother-in-law can eat a good meal, first one in a while. Ruth has worked like a trooper in the hot sun all day long and she's constantly thinking about the needs of Naomi, providing for them. Now all of this is consistent with what we saw of Ruth's character back in chapter one. Her behaviour has the force of a promise behind it. 
She made a promise to Naomi in the midst of chaotic circumstances without knowing what would come. New York pastor Jeff White comments that a promise is making an appointment with yourself in the future. I'll meet you there and this is what we'll do. A promise is a pledge for the future that says to someone else, I will be there for you. A promise creates an oasis of predictability in a world of change. Something stable. And when we make a promise, we are most human and most free. Animals, you may have noticed, don't make promises. They just respond to their instincts and their needs at that moment. You may love your cat, but I'm afraid your cat is not really deeply committed to you. The cat is driven by its instincts and you are a source of food, shelter and comfort. Not to be too hard on cats, my tortoise is the same. Now no animal ever promises to be there for you, but a human being can because God has made us like that because we're like him. And actually, if we go through life trying to keep our options open at all costs, it is a disease of the spirit and we are the ones who are impoverished by it. Because if you constantly try to live to keep your options open, you are in bondage to your own instincts and needs and desires. You're actually enslaved by them. You're in danger of treating other people as commodities who you pick up and use when they serve you and set aside and discard when they don't. That is not a path to human flourishing according to the Bible. Commitment is. Promises. And so the first thing we learn is that if we're going to live a full life, a flourishing life, we have to learn to be loyal. Loyalty. And it is costly, isn't it? Look at what Ruth has committed to Naomi. Loyalty is costly, but it is so fulfilling. Because it is the only thing that will bring true joy and fullness in a relationship over time. The fact that that relationship is built on promises. People who make promises, keep them, who are loyal, will find that their relationships get stronger and more rewarding as life goes by. You can only have real intimacy in a relationship where there is trust, can't you? Where you trust that person and they trust you. And that means loyalty. Persisting in the relationship when it's difficult, when it's challenging, when it's awkward, when sometimes it's uncomfortable. Keeping going in it and working through it makes that relationship stronger, more intimate and more actually fulfilling. We need to understand that life was made to be given away. We were created to give rather than to get. And Ruth goes above and beyond what could possibly be expected of her. Ruth is loyal. She gives herself. And we recognise that as heroic. Don't you want that kind of life? Ruth's loyalty is, is exemplary in a world that is afraid of self-sacrifice. Just think about our culture. I think our culture is fairly commitment-phobic. And we live in a city that's very transient. Many people come and go in Manchester. We know often, even in church or in, in your neighbourhood or in relationships, people are coming and going. They maybe only stay a year, two years, three years. You can start to be find yourself getting a bit self-protective and think, well, 
I won't give myself in a relationship because I don't know if I'm, you know, I'm going to lose out. Let me ask you, are you afraid of being loyal? Are you afraid of commitment? Scared of giving too much of yourself in relationships? Could it be the reason why some relationships aren't working out for you? Because you're just holding too much back. You can't put it out there. You're, you're always keeping your options open. Well, because you're not really committed to that other person for who they are, but for what they can give to you. That way lies emptiness. You will be less than you could be if you continue to live like that. We were built for loyalty. We were built to give, and Ruth shows us that. Consider the loyalty of Ruth. Secondly, consider the generosity of Boaz. Here's another person. Again, this is unexpected and it's countercultural for us. And even in this culture, it, it was quite stunning. We might instinctively think, might we, that, that the way to flourish is to gain more and more and accrue more resources to ourselves, to build up our resources so that we're well provided for, maybe even affluent to have plenty saved, plenty stored away, plenty of time, plenty of spare, plenty of capacity, all those things. And what we find here in the case of Boaz is a radical generosity that goes beyond anything a normal person would do. And even in his culture, it was noticed. Verse one has pointed out that Boaz is a man of standing. He's a, a person with a status in the culture. He's, he's, uh, a, a, he's got land. He's got family. He's, he's a man of some, some substance. And in verse 3, we discover that the field that Ruth has gone into is actually belonging to him. And his workers are there at that time. So Boaz is employing people. He's, he's an employer. He's, a, he's, you could say, a farmer, a landowner. And this is his business. And verse 5, he comes along and he greets, he greets his staff very cheerily in a godly way. And then he immediately spots there's someone here who isn't on the team. So he asks, you know, who does that woman belong to? Because you know, she's one of my staff. And the overseer replies and tells him about Ruth and, and underlines twice that she's the Moabite from Moab. <laughs> now, as soon as Boaz hears this in verse 8, he immediately starts being generous. He uses a kind word, my daughter. It's affectionate, respectful. And it's bringing her from a, being a person who's out there to someone who's near. He, he gives her protection. He's told the men not to lay a hand on her. He says, look, if you're ever thirsty, go and use those jars that the men have pulled the water out. You have as much water as you need. Verse 8, it says, there's another key detail. Our translation says, follow along after the women. It literally means stick close after the women workers. And what he's doing here is giving Ruth the right to, to glean beside the women who were working, binding up the grain, cut, picking it up and, and binding it into bundles and sheaves. Well, that's going to be a rich, rich pickings there because they'll be dropping stuff and it's on the floor. And he's saying, you go right in with them and you pick up there. In other words, something that's normally off limits is being made available to Ruth. And she's actually stunned by this. It's so generous. She doesn't know how to respond. She she does something that in the, the ancient East was a, a gesture of great respect, which is to fall to the bow to the ground. And she says, well, why have I found such favor in your eyes? And Boaz says, I've heard what you've done. 
And then in verses 11 to 12, we get this wonderful high point. He says, I've been told about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May the God of, may you be richly rewarded by the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know, Boaz here speaks more truly than he knows. Because as the story goes on, we're going to find more and more how much God has taken Ruth, this alien and stranger, under his wing, given her refuge and provided for her richly. Because that's the kind of God he is. There's more to come in Boaz's generosity. Verse 14, he says, come and dip some of this bread in this wine vinegar. It's a, it's a treat for the workers in the middle of the day. It's like a, a, imagine some French workers in, in Provence with uh, some, some lovely French bread and some, a little glass of wine. And it's just, it's familial. And then he has a private word to the men in verse 15. He says, listen, let her gather any of the places that she wants you know, even the places that she, she shouldn't. And listen, while you're harvesting, make sure you drop some stalks on the ground so she's got plenty to pick up. Now, all of this is Boaz just giving out. It's like he's just opened his wallet. He's giving out all this to this complete stranger. And it, of course, as we know, leads to a bumper crop. What has Boaz done? He's taken the outsider and treated her like a member of the family. He's given Ruth a seat at the meal table shared broken bread with her, shared their resources at lunch. He's treated her like a family member, not like a poor refugee, which is what she is. And this too is part of what the Bible shows us is a life of human flourishing. It is to be a person of generosity, a person who constantly uses their resources to serve and help and bless others. Not a person who's always holding back for themselves, but someone who trusts God. He will provide for me and gives away freely, not counting the cost all the time. Now, is this something that people would say was true of you? If they looked at your life. The way you use your stuff, your possessions, your money. The way you use your time the way you use your friendship, your emotional capacity, the way you use your, your home, even your food. Are you a person with open hands or is it all rather tightly held? Now we live in a culture that is self-obsessed and self-serving. We've even found a way to take photos of ourselves called selfies. Real generosity in a world that is self-obsessed shines like a lamp in a coal mine. When someone is just free and gives away, it, is, it, is, it shines. Most people are living self-serving lives and they've only, they've, they've only got enough resource to use to, to serve themselves and maybe they're in a circle. But Boaz instantly takes responsibility for this refugee. And yes, there is risk involved, isn't there? There's risk that, you know, Ruth could take more than she should. She could steal from him. He doesn't know anything about her character. There's a risk that the other employees could be annoyed about this because they're having to work really hard and get paid for it. Who's this person coming in and picking up the stuff? There's a risk that maybe 
he would lose a bit of cre- uh, credibility in the culture, you know, just acting stupidly like that. You know, there's some kind of risk always when you get involved with other people. And yeah, you could, you could lose out. But what we see is that to live a full life, a flourishing life, we've got to learn to be generous. And that is risky. You're letting go of control, control of yourself, of your own resources. You risk not having as much, not having enough. You, you, you will be worse off if you live a generous life. Consider the generosity of Boaz, even as we consider the loyalty of Ruth. Now, those are two very fine qualities, but I, let me say now, the sermon can't end here, because if it did, it would simply be a moral lesson, a kind of morality thing where we say, live like this, do good, because you know you should. And, of course, we know we should live like that, but to be honest, knowing about it isn't really the issue. The real issue is finding the motivation to change and to be like that. Why should we be loyal and generous? And the answer is woven through our text. It's because God is kind to us. God is so kind to us. And my goodness, how we overlook it. Verse 3, remember, as it turned out, she was working in a field that belonged to Boaz. As it turned out, that walking into that field and just choosing to work there changed her life forever. It turned the, the, the emptiness and starvation into a place of fullness and blessing, joy, just because of that coincidence. But is it really a coincidence? It just turned out that she went into that field, not according to the Bible. Because in the worldview of the Bible, God controls all things and things only happen with his permission. There is no such thing as chance or fate or luck. There's no such thing. Let me give you a couple of texts here. Amos chapter 3 verse 6. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Even disaster is permitted by the Lord. It's not bad luck. Lamentations chapter 3. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? You see, you can't speak and let something happen unless God himself has decreed it, that he's permitted or caused that thing to happen. Both good things and calamities come from God. Now, I know that's going to open up some serious philosophical questions for us about the nature of suffering. And we mustn't dodge those questions But the fact remains that in the picture of the Bible, the worldview of the Bible, God is absolutely sovereign and nothing happens without his permission or his deliberately causing it. So the apparent coincidence of stumbling into Boaz's field is actually part of the plan of God. It's part of his kindness because God has better things in store for Ruth and Naomi. Verse 12, he is the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth is going to find a refuge that she never would have dreamed of because she's going to come to know Israel's God. And walking into that field was the first part. This God is the one who is behind the laws of gleaning. He's the one who sets up the social framework where food is available for the poor. But this God is also behind another law in the Old Testament 
which we're going to think about briefly. It's the law of the guardian redeemer. Have a look at verse 20 again. You know, when Naomi bursts out happily about the, she heard it was Boaz. She says, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer was somebody in your family. This is a legal term in the culture. Someone who has got a moral obligation to redeem a relative in serious difficulty. So you can read about this in uh, the book of Leviticus, chapter 19 and 25. And there's something about it in Deuteronomy 2. That in the, in the culture, if an Israelite fell on really hard times and he had to sell himself into slavery, which they could do to pay back a debt, their, their relative, who was the guardian redeemer, would have an obligation to come and buy them out of debt, to redeem them from slavery and set them free again, if they could. Now, they didn't have to do it, but it was considered a moral obligation. God had written that into his law, and Boaz is that man. He doesn't have to accept the obligation, but he can do. And what we're finding here already is proof through his generosity that he will take on board provision for two widows. That is something that comes out of the nature of God who created that, that law in the first place. That God sets up this idea of the guardian redeemer who can save the needy. Now, what we're seeing here, what we're getting at, is something, a characteristic that is fundamental to the nature of God himself, which is his kindness. I wonder if you realise that God is kind. Have a look again at verse 20. The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Now, the scholars are divided on whether... Naomi's talking about God has not stopped showing his kindness or Boaz has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. But either way, it comes back to the same thing. God is the one who shows kindness to all, the living and the dead. In this context, the dead are the family of Elimelech and those, those sons who died and the living are the two widows. But God hasn't stopped in the midst of tragedy, showing his kindness. And he will come through for them in his timing. You see, that's the nature of the God that the Bible reveals to us. So let me ask you, as we try and land this plane here, are you building your life on the kindness of God? Behold, the kindness and severity of God, says the book of Romans. Are you seeing the realities of what the Bible speaks about in, in Romans chapter 8, that I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God didn't hold back from sending his own son Jesus to the cross, then will he not with him give you many, everything else needed? If God is for us, who can be against us? Have you realised that the ultimate guardian redeemer... It's the son of God himself who loved you and gave himself for you. Jesus Christ is the greater Boaz. The kindness of God is the only thing that will change us and make us prepared to be loyal and generous. But notice that this chapter ends 
with the end of the harvest. So about a seven week period. That was the harvest over. The grain is going to run out. The widows are still alone. Ruth is still unmarried. She's living with her mother-in-law. There has been a wonderful phase here, but the future is still uncertain at the end of chapter 2. God moves in mysterious ways. But he does move. They really need a redeemer. He's going to provide one, but not all at once. Verse 23 reveals that we have to learn to trust him. It's not instant. Why does God work like this? It's one of the great questions of life, isn't it? I think part of the answer is that it's only in those times of trouble and uncertainty and hardship that we really grow. That we really mature, that we do flourish. We learn to trust God, to be loyal and generous, only when we're actually really going through the mill. In other words, and I slightly tremble to say this, part of becoming fully human is to suffer. Part of becoming fully human is to suffer. William Cooper was an 18th century poet, one of the greatest poets of his time in England. And he was a committed Christian, wrote a number of very beautiful hymns. Cooper suffered with mental health issues, dark depression, suicidal thoughts and attempts through much of his adult life. He was a deeply troubled man, but he, he also knew uh, God in a deep and profound way that, that helped him. Let me finish this message with a, a famous poem, a hymn of Cooper's that maybe will, will help us to reflect. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray. Gracious God, we want to bring our lives before you now and bring them into your presence. And regardless of how we feel or have been this week, we want to come before you. Those who are struggling with feelings of squalor and shame and regret. Those who are struggling with uncertainty, anxiety, fear. Those who just feel numb. Those who are going through times of darkness tempted to despair those who just feel frustrated father we bring all this before you you knew it already and we thank you that you're kind you've not stopped showing your kindness to the living and the dead and you've not stopped showing it to us teach us what we need to know we pray to live that full and flourishing loyal and generous life for we ask in jesus name amen <laughs>